listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Thank you so much for uh, having me today. I always love um, getting to be here in Locust Grove. Uh, for those of you who, who may not know me or may not remember me, my name is uh, Caleb. I'm one of the pastors uh, at South Point. Most of the time, um, me and my family are up in McDonough, uh, but it's awesome to be here with you guys in Locust Grove today. So if you want to uh, go ahead and be turning in, in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 11, we're going to be continuing on with our series in Luke today. My family's here with me this morning. Uh, my wife, Emily, and my kids, David and Lily, are back there on the back pew. And I was thinking uh, the other day uh, about not too long ago, uh, David and Lily, uh, they really had this fascination, even still kind of have this fascination sometimes with, with uh, putting on my clothes. Um, I don't know if uh, any of your kids uh, have this, but for whatever reason, they love going into my uh, drawers and, and putting my clothes on. And uh, one time, a couple, couple years ago, uh, I came in, and, and they decided a really good game was let's both put on daddy's clothes together, and it took both of them to, to fill out one of my shirts and pairs of shorts, and they thought this was hilarious that uh, it takes two of them to fill out one pair of my clothes. Uh, but I, I was remembering back to when I was a kid and uh, thinking about my dad, looking up to him, kind of respecting him, seeing him as, as kind of what it was to be a, a man, a godly, spiritual man, spiritual leader for our family. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, I, it was the same kind of thing. I would try to put on some of those kind of habits, uh, put on uh, his mannerisms at times. Um, and I remember even just in a really physical way about that. When I, when I went to college and, and you know, became an, started becoming an adult, the first pair of shoes that I bought, I remember for myself, first pair of dress shoes that I bought for myself. Uh, I always remember my dad wearing this like black leather wingtips. I don't know why, but it just made me think those are spiritual shoes. Um, he would wear those with his suit every Sunday and is like, man, I, I want to go get a pair of these so that I could wear them to church. And uh, it's like, no, it's got to have like the leather on the bottom. I don't want the rubber on the bottom. It's got to be like the real legit like black leather wingtips. And that was like the first. And I don't know why. It's like, you know, that's that's uh, that's what it means to like be a, a spiritual leader. It's just like this outward symbol kind of of, of this reality that, that he had. Uh, and, and I think about the Lord's Prayer that we're going to be talking today is it's something that's kind of like this. We see the disciples in this passage asking Jesus, teach us to pray like a, like a kid asking their dad to teach them something. And in a lot of ways, it, it is very, this is like the essence of Jesus' mission and his, his mission in the world. And he's giving this template for the disciples to sort of lay over their own spiritual prayer lives, their own lives, to sort of, um, that they can kind of grow it up into and to embody. And so let's look at this, this passage of scripture for just a second here in Luke chapter 11. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, 
Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins, for we, forget, uh, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I can not get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is, because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the Lord's Prayer for us is going to sum up the mission and purpose of Jesus and it's a prayer that we are going to be called to spend our life striving to inhabit and to make our own prayer in Jesus and with the help of the Holy Spirit. So the, the context for this passage, the, the last few chapters in Luke, since we've kind of been back in Luke from uh, uh, the Advent season. So the context of this, we, we see back in Luke chapter 9, we have the transfiguration. And at the transfiguration, we see this shifting in Jesus' ministry uh, to sort of establishing himself to now this more urgency where he's really trying to explain to the disciples uh, what it is he's come for, what his mission is, and what the kingdom of God is that he's trying to bring about in the world. And we see it very literally a physical and spiritual transition towards Jerusalem, a physical and spiritual transition towards the cross. And there's this journey towards Jerusalem where Jesus' ultimate destination is to die on the cross for our sins and to bring about the reality of God's kingdom in our hearts. And while he's doing this, he's teaching the disciples in very real and practical ways, and also through the words that he says to them and the applications that he makes, uh, what it means to be a member of the kingdom of God, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be uh, one of his followers, and what it means to be a kingdom person. And so if we look back from chapter 9, some of these lessons just really quickly we see. He, he's calling a people who are willing to forsake all else for the kingdom of God. So a, a radical reorganizing of our priorities to where it's not about just me right now anymore. It's not just about my family. It's about the kingdom of God first and foremost, and also people who are willing to set their minds firmly on Jesus and his kingdom, to see and know Jesus for who he is. And then we saw last week in the, the story of the Good Samaritan and, and also in this story of Martha and Mary, we see that the kingdom uh, people are going to be a people who live lives of sacrificial love for all people. And that they're going to be lives like we see in the story of, of Martha. That we're supposed to have, we're supposed to be self-forgetful. We're not, we're supposed to be people who, who are not putting ourselves first we're supposed to be people who serve with the right motives directed towards Jesus and his kingdom in humility. And that's the, 
that brings us to this passage that we just looked at today, where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Now, this isn't the only time we see the Lord's Prayer in Scripture. We see it also in Matthew chapter 6. And there's been some, like, you know, this is different a little bit in Matthew chapter 6. Like, does this call into question the inerrancy of Scripture or something like that? Well, what we have here is, and we, we see it that the simplest answer is just from the direct context, we see that these are probably most likely two different occasions where Jesus is using the same general template of, of how to teach the disciples to pray. And based on these contexts, it's just a slightly different emphasis that we see. So in the Matthew passage, we see the emphasis on, listen, we're not like the Gentiles who are just like throwing up wordy prayers as if how, how many words we say or how flowery or fancy our words are, that's going to somehow earn us the favor of God. You know, we're not like that. We're saying simple and direct prayers in consistency with this. And he lays out this sort of template for what our prayer life is supposed to be. And then in this passage, we see he sets it in context of verses 5 through 13, where he, he's telling these stories to, to prove just a couple of simple points about how our prayer is supposed to, to be, what our prayer is supposed to be marked by. So not so ne much necessarily in those parts, the, the content of our prayer, but the, the way we're supposed to approach God in prayer. And so in the, this first one, um, we see a, a story that kind of uses the hospitality in this culture as a way to say that we're supposed to pray with urgency and expectation. We're supposed to pray with urgency and expectation. So in this time period, you know, hospitality was, was almost everything for them. And so to, to not have something to set before someone who's come to visit as a guest is one of the ultimate no-nos in this kind of community. So this person is running desperately to his neighbor. It's an emergency. I need this so bad. I know you're asleep with your family, but it's worth waking up your whole family for you to come and help me out here because you're my friend, okay? So, so he's saying we're supposed to go to him with urgency. I think about it today, like, you know, my, um, you know, I got I, my, my cell phone, and uh, so you, you hear your cell phone ring once sometimes, or you, you're feeling a buzz once sometimes, and it's like, I, I'm in the middle of something. I can kind of ignore that. But there's been a few times, especially with my wife, where that thing starts buzzing like crazy and somebody needs an urgent response. And if I don't respond, I'm going to be bearing the consequences of those things. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever pulled up your phone and seen that you got like 37 missed calls, but that's going to cause some little, a little fear in the pit of your stomach because, uh, uh oh, I've missed something that's really important and somebody's probably called the police to try to figure out where I'm, where I'm at. Uh, Maybe Life 360's kind of fixed that problem in now for now, but you know, there's a couple times in the past few years where uh, that I think neighbors were on the way to my house to see what was going on. Uh, so, so that's the kind of urgency that somebody has. If we're hitting that send over and over and over again on the cell phone, like I've got to talk to you right now. There's something so important, something so urgent that I need help with. And, and we see Jesus isn't going to guarantee the disciples that they're always going to get what they ask. But he does assure them that we're not going to seek him in vain, that our prayers are never going to go unanswered. And we see this incredible clause at the end. The heavenly father is going to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And so that means that means for us, he's, go he's going to give us 
We may be wanting something, uh, and he, he may not give us exactly what we want, but it's not going unanswered. He will give us what we need as a loving father. And just as a loving parent won't necessarily always give a child what they want or demand in the moment, it's not because they don't love that child. The answer is going to come from a place of love. He's like, you, you people who are evil people, you're not going to give your kid a snake. You're not going to throw a scorpion on them because they're asking for food. It's like you're, that's not how you're going to, you're, you're not going to do that. And just like God is not going to give us something that is not for our good. He's not going to give us something that is not coming from a place of love to us. And that guarantee in this, in this case is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in our hearts, the Spirit of God in our lives. And so just like Jesus, we live also in a world of injustice, a world of, of malice, a, lo- a world of, of, of daily hunger, uh, a world of, of evil, a world with r- real people have real problems. And, and the people that we see in Jesus' day, they're not that different from people today. Yeah, different culture, different customs. But at the end of the day, the desire to, to live a life uh, to, to provide for family, to, to find purpose and meaning, to find love. These things are, are kind of universal things. And, and we see in this prayer sort of a condensed version of the way that Jesus is going to, to answer what this life is about, what his kingdom is all about. And this is an invitation to his followers to come into his mission and to come into his purpose in the world. So we can can very literally see, again, in a very condensed way, what Jesus is all about, what his spiritual priorities are. And, and what an amazing thing for us to be able to see a slice of the prayer life of Jesus laid open for us, to, to say, this is how I understand my mission. This is the way that I communicate with the Father, and then him to invite us to take this on for ourselves. So, I was thinking the other day about how hard it is for us to kind of truly change, how, how we find ourselves in these sort of grooves in our lives, uh, these sort of patterns of behavior, these ways of thinking about things. And, and what I want to challenge you with today is to take this very familiar prayer and, and to see it through new eyes as a way to break us out of those patterns of behavior and those grooves that we kind of follow and find ourselves in and to allow this to to break us out of that. And even though it may feel like putting on, you know, your dad's clothes that that doesn't quite fit, uh, to to put this on and allow the Spirit of God to sort of grow us up into this prayer. And so for us to do that, we need to understand really clearly uh, what this prayer is really saying, what Jesus is meaning, and what he's saying by this prayer. And we're going to look at that in, in a few different ways. So first of all, we're going to see uh, this first part, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Hallowed is your name. To, 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 hallowed is your name is you know, a way of saying, let's make your name holy. And so we're going to see in this, this uh, very first phrase here that God is both a personal father and a transcendent and holy God. It was one of the things that you've probably heard of this prayer before, or at least might remember in the way that Jesus prays and teaches people to pray is that he uses that personal phrase, Abba, uh, like daddy, like father, like as a child talking to a parent, this intimate word that he uses for a father, not like a, a temple formal you know, spiritual phrase, but like a very real and personal way of speaking to 
your dad. And so in one sense, we have a very personal God. And this would be very different from the way that a lot of the Jewish people would have have understood and related to God. But Jesus is making this a very personal thing. This is his father, and he's inviting us to see God as our father in a very real and very personal way. But with that, he's also saying, this is God our father, personal, intimate God, and yet this is also transcendent and holy God as well. He holds these two things together, and this is the way he starts his prayer. This is the way that that everything else is going to come from this truth, that we have this personal God who loves us and cares about us as a father cares about his children. And the really crazy thing is that that personal God who loves us and cares about us in that way is also the God who created everything, who created the universe, who's totally sovereign, who's totally transcendent, who's completely holy. That is really radical way to start this prayer. And unfortunately for many of us, a lot of times when we go to God in prayer, we start with the end kind of of this Lord's prayer. We start with, God, here's my, here's my needs. Okay? And, and I don't want to criticize that way because hopefully we end up finding our way back around. But if we follow this pattern, it's going to really set our needs in the context of this is a God who loves me and it's also a holy and sovereign and transcendent God. And we see Jesus approaching God in this way. Okay, so, so this is the first thing. Before he gets to his own needs, he sets the priority with God. God's name is everything. It it sums up his character, his purpose, and his will. To make God's name holy in our hearts is to recognize him as truly God, as who he is, as he's revealed in Scripture. So the first part of this prayer is to see God as he truly is, our personal Father, but also sovereign and holy and just and in control and perfect. And if we start here, it's going to adjust a lot of what we might otherwise bring to this prayer. The first use of of God as Father in Scripture is going to come from Exodus chapter 4, 22 through 23. And this is when Moses comes and delivers God's message to to Pharaoh and says, uh, I'm demanding that you release my firstborn son Israel. Allow them to go free. Now, how many... How many of you remember back to your childhood? And, you know, for me, it was like I, I, want, I would, it, uh, a lot of times I would want my mom, but if things were going really wrong in my life, sometimes I really need dad to step in and make it right. I need dad to really step in and, and fix things for me. And, and this is exactly what God wants to be for us. We see that with the people of Israel. He steps in and says, no, my people are going to go free. I'm not going to stop until you release my firstborn son, Israel. So for Jesus in this message, Jesus delivering this to his disciples, uh, he's, he's reminding them to see God as father, but also as liberator, as savior, as the one who sets them free from slavery to sin and brings them in this true exodus into God's kingdom. This word is, is really a revolutionary word. To call him father in this way, in this context for these disciples is to call back to to the exodus and to say, you're going to be liberated from this slavery in your life. So calling Jesus father is also to to, to take on this mantle of responsibility as well, though. So we're, we're we're not just seeing him as father, 
but we're also taking on the responsibility of being one of his children. We're, so, so the Lord's Prayer is, is going to bring us blessing, and it's going to bring us freedom, and we're going to meet Jesus in this, but it's also to be brought into his kingdom as a child and, see the, and, and to take on the mantle of responsibility as one of his children. He is not the father if we're not also his children. It means we take on his mission as our own mission to step into this mission that doesn't necessarily fit us right away, but that through the power of the spirit, as we see at the end of this passage, he's going to grow us up into. And this should not be taken lightly by us. We love the idea of seeing him as father, to be there for us, to protect us. But a lot of times we don't necessarily want to take on his mission in the world. But that's what it's a call to as well, to both see him as father, but also to see him as sovereign God, who is the one who is over us in the world, in our lives, and to take on that mantle of his mission in our lives as well. To take on this prayer of Jesus is to take on the task of growing up into him, to take on the task of of allowing ourselves and our character to be shaped by the mission of Jesus. And the second thing we see in this passage is he he prays, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. Just three brief words packed with so much meaning. So the mission of God as revealed here in Jesus is to bring about the kingdom of God to earth. God's mission is not to just sort of snatch us out of uh, a sinking ship and take us off to, to happy heaven in the clouds somewhere. That's not what his mission in the world is. Um, it's, it's bad theology that's gotten us to that point, not the, the clear teaching of Scripture. His mission is to bring his kingdom to earth. We see this very clearly in the mission and ministry of Jesus And we also see this very clearly if we look to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21, there's no point where the point of the the, the goal of everything is to kind of help us to escape from this world. The goal is to bring the, the mission of God and his kingdom and his reign into the world. And he starts with the disciples of Jesus and the kingdom has to become a reality for them, which is why he's teaching them what we've just talked about in the, in the kind of context of this passage. He's saying, this is what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, to, to have his kingdom as a priority, to, to forget about yourself and your own needs, to put his, him above yourself, to have this kind of self-sacrificing love for other people. That's what it means for his kingdom to become a reality in our hearts and in our lives. We want God to come and make everything right, but a lot of times we don't necessarily want to, for it all to be right in our hearts and in our lives. And so that kingdom of God is supposed to become a reality in us as we follow him as a disciple. And then it's supposed to become a reality in our churches. Our churches are supposed to represent what heaven is going to be like, what eternity with God is going to be like, a place where people from different backgrounds, different nations, different tongues, different classes, different races come together and worship God as one. People who's from, from all intents and purposes, based on our backgrounds and interests, don't necessarily have a lot of common ground. But since Jesus is our priority and he is first, then everything else is reordered after that. We become a people who love each other, who forgive each other, who serve together, who sacrifice with each other. If we pray for God's kingdom to come, we have to be prepared for it to begin in our own hearts in our own families, 
in our own homes, in our own churches, and then that to begin to play out as we're the salt and light in the world, and it'll start to play out into the world. And, and we say, yes, but it, we're never going to be able to, to bring about his kingdom. You know, that may be the case, but, but we can start to live as, as citizens of his kingdom now through the power of the Spirit, and our families can be transformed, and our churches can be transformed. And ultimately, yes, Jesus is going to return and set us right. So we have that to look forward to. But that doesn't mean that we're excused and we can just kind of wait for that to happen. That's not what, it's, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be a part of that kingdom mission and purpose in the here and now. We're not just waiting for God to sort of sort everything out and fix everything. We've been given the Spirit of God so that we can start to put on this sort of character and life and these priorities here and now. And that means that we start to change. That groove that we find ourselves in, we can be broken out of it, not because of our own efforts, but because of the Spirit of God doing a work in our hearts and changing us. And the third thing we see here is that, that Jesus prays that God would give us each day our daily bread that God would give us each day our daily bread. Jesus is concerned with, and, and God is concerned with, um, our daily needs. But Jesus is also the ultimate answer to the deepest needs of our heart and the deepest needs of our soul. What an incredible thing to know that in laying out this prayer, we see, you know, God is concerned with our practical everyday needs. We know this is like, man, he knows intimately the birds of the field, the sparrow. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's concerned with you every single day. It's, it's, God is our father. You know, he, he cares about us. He wants good for us. He, he sees our suffering, our struggles, our pain. He sees those things. So, so this is an important priority. But again, we see that this is coming underneath our true understanding of who God is and what he's trying to accomplish in the world and what he's trying to accomplish in our lives. So when we understand these first couple of things, this puts our needs in perspective. So we see God is trying to accomplish something big in the world. He's inviting us to be a part of that. He does love us as a father, but he's also sovereign over the whole world. And so he cares about our needs. But sometimes, sometimes his Sometimes we don't necessarily understand what our needs really are in the right way. And here's the thing. Our needs and our desires, they reflect our true spiritual condition a lot of the times. So for many of us, I think that we don't necessarily really want to pray our needs to God in any real and true way because we don't necessarily want to say to God what we really want, what we really desire. And, and I want to be I'll be really honest with you this week. So uh, right now about this week. Okay. So this past week I was, I found out on Monday that I was going to be preaching this, this sermon this week and uh, started working on it Monday night. It's like, okay, getting a little rough outline. Things are, you know, okay. So things are starting to take shape a little bit, but I can tell you it's one of those weeks where as, as things go on, it's like, I, I was very much sort of becoming, and I just preached on this the, the week before, and this is how it happens sometimes, I guess, but I was very much becoming like, that Martha in the last passage, like, we just have a week sometimes where it's like, man, it's easy for me to look at my circumstances and to be like, man, it's not really fair. You know, I don't really like, like my daily bread is becoming a concern for me. 
you know, and this isn't my fault. Like, why is this happening? Like, why are these certain things in my job? Why are these things in life? Like, and, and just start to really become selfish, inward focused, worried about uh, what, I, what my needs are. And my needs are not in line with, with his purposes and his, his needs, with what he wants. And I even remember like one point thinking like, oh man, I'm gonna have to get back into this uh, sermon prep. It's not gonna be fun because I'm gonna be feeling some serious conviction for some of this stuff. And, and God hit me upside the head with a spiritual two by four to say, you need to reprioritize what your needs actually are. Because if I'm totally honest with you, the majority of time, what I'm wanting and what I'm desiring on a daily basis uh, are not probably what's necessarily good for me, uh, are showing a lot more about my own selfishness, my own pride, my own self-sufficiency. And what this prayer is going to bring us in line with is, is saying, like, no, what you really need, what you really need, it, he's, I'm going to meet your practical everyday needs. I'm going to take care of you. may not be what you want, but what you really need is to depend on Jesus, to trust in him. You say, well, that sounds like really super spiritual. Like, I'm really struggling today. Like, I, again, we have a God who cares about those practical needs. But the reality is for so many of us, what we think are our daily needs, they're not really, our, they're not really needs. They're wants, they're desires. And again, it's showing us the truth about our own spiritual condition, condition. And we need to ask God, again, to bring us in line with what his priorities are, with what his mission is. And we need to ask ourselves, man, is this what I really need? Is this what's really good for me? Or is this my own pride? Is this my own selfishness? Is this showing something uh, a little deeper about my own spiritual condition? Do I need to kind of go back to the, the beginning here and see God as a loving Father and sovereign Lord and see what his kingdom purposes are? So God is concerned with those daily practical needs of his people, but they're going to look much different in the context of who God is and what his purpose and mission is. And this passage doesn't just point us to the physical needs of our life, but the daily practical spiritual needs that we have as well. And ultimately, this points to, to the, the object of our deepest need and hunger, which is Jesus himself. Is Jesus himself. And as we're going to see a little bit later on, uh, this is symbolized in, in the Lord's Supper that we have, where it's taking this, this physical reality of a, a constant dependence on Jesus and showing that this is our deepest spiritual need to constantly return to the gospel of Jesus, his, his, his body broken for us, his, his blood spilled for us. And, and depending on him and the spirit that he gives us, that is that, that, that's the thing that's going to satisfy our hunger most deeply, our wants most deeply. And so we're called to bring our daily desires and wants to God and ask him to show us and what that really says about us and to bring those into conformity with his vision and mission for us and for our lives. And then we see in the, in the fourth clause here, the fourth phrase here, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive others. Uh, forgive our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. God's people forgive much because we have been forgiven much. God's people forgive much because we have been forgiven much. And I think one of the best ways that we can understand what Jesus meant about forgiveness and 
I'm not going to go too deep into this because it's, it's coming in a few weeks in Luke, but to really understand the image of the running father in the story of the prodigal son. To understand that the running father. And, and the fact that it doesn't surprise or shock us uh, shows kind of where our understanding about right and wrong and sin and forgiveness really are in our culture. So the running father is what shocked people in, their, in Jesus' day about this story, that the, that the father would take this insult from this prodigal son and yet run to embrace him is the most shocking thing about that passage in our story. But I think a lot of times for us, we read this and we're like, yeah, of course he's going to do that. That's what he should do. Uh, because for us, our culture is not a culture that really understands or values forgiveness because the truth is, in our culture, we don't really believe in right or wrong that much. It, you know, it, it, our culture slips into to the church even at times, and, and we, we don't really emphasize or stress or, or value the, the, or even see like the level of offense that we have towards God. Because for our culture, we believe not so much in right and wrong as much as opinion and preference and toleration. So when someone does wrong, someone's not doing wrong. They have a different opinion than us, and we're called to kind of tolerate that opinion. Uh, that's the way our culture kind of sees, sees things. So to see a father lovingly embracing a son who's embraced totally different values than us and rejected everything that the father, you know, sort of is about, that's not that foreign to us. That's expected, almost celebrated in our culture today. And so we have to begin to, to develop that biblical worldview and way of looking at things to understand how radical the forgiveness that God has for us really is. To pray for forgiveness is to acknowledge that God is a creator and designer and lawgiver, and to acknowledge that we are sinful and deserving of death and separation, and yet to cry out to him as father in in. in like regardless of that fact, with boldness, because that's what Jesus is, has allowed us to do through his sacrifice on the cross. And so we have to truly grasp the, the gravity of God running to us in spite of our sin, his infinite goodness, and what we truly deserve as a result of that. And it's so easy for us, even as I'm planning this message, even as I'm saying these words, to be like, yeah, but it's not that bad. You know, it's so hard for us in our culture to really grasp the offense of sinning against a holy and sovereign and perfect creator God. And yet we see it clearly in scripture. And so if we truly want to be, and, and here's how this ends up playing out, because we struggle with forgiving others because of this. We struggle with forgiving others because we don't really grasp the, gr the gravity of our own forgiveness. We see, again, we see this in the story of the the, you know, the, the guy who's the debtor who's been forgiven, you know, massive amounts and then is going to immediately go turn around and throw somebody in prison because he owes him a little bit. That's what we end up doing so much of the times. We read it in that story and we're like, that's stupid. And yet how much we don't realize the, the magnitude of the debt that we have been forgiven or else we would be marked as a forgiving kind of people, as people who run to others with forgiveness in our hearts. This is one of the most challenging things. We see this in the story of the Good Samaritan, that self-sacrificing love. That's not a normal pattern of life. And this radical forgiveness, that's not a normal pattern of life. It's so much easier for us to be like, ah, we don't get along. You know, ah, we're not, that's, that's not us. And that's the way that our culture would have it. We just kind of get by. We just kind of tolerate each other. 
Now, this radical forgiveness is very different. It's acknowledging the wrongs committed, that I have been wronged or you have been wronged, and reconciling it. We don't live in a culture right now that really loves or appreciates true reconciliation. Because to really understand that reconciliation, we have to acknowledge the depth of the wrongs that we've committed. And then we have to be willing to love each other and forgive each other anyway. And so that's the kind of people that we're called to be. And so the challenge for us is to look at our own lives and see, man, who are the people that I need to run to to forgive? Not because I'm trying to earn the forgiveness of God, but because God has forgiven me so much already. And that's the key for us to understand here. This is not to say that we, you know, he says in this passage, forgive our sins for we ourselves, uh, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. He's not saying, you know, forgive us because we've forgiven other people. He's saying, you've been forgiven much. Now we're called to be forgiving people. It's what it means to be one of God's kingdom people, a follower of Jesus, to forgive much because of the depth of our own forgiveness. So what can, uh, what can we do with uh, the guilt and that need for forgiveness uh, for others? We could, we've got a couple options there. We can either deny that that guilt exists, uh, or we can just ignore the guilt, which I think is what we end up falling into a lot of times, or we can acknowledge that gift, that guilt, and uh, forgive that what's been done to us, or seek forgiveness from others. And so we're called as kingdom people through the, this prayer to put on this forgiveness. And again, just like the self-sacrificial love, just like the kingdom focus, just like the, the denying our own priorities and putting his priorities first, these are not going to seem like clothes that fit us very well. And yet we're called to put these on anyway and allow the Spirit of God to grow us up into these things. And finally, he says, lead us not into temptation. And, and in the Matthew passage, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this petition, like this entire prayer, is rooted in Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus is the one who endured temptation. Jesus is the one who was delivered up to evil so that we can be delivered from temptation and we can be ultimately delivered from evil through Jesus' triumph on the cross. We can boldly pray for God to deliver us from temptation and evil because Jesus was delivered up to temptation and evil on our behalf. But the danger when we pray this is we're praying for him to, to crucify our flesh, to crucify our old man and to make us like him. To be delivered from temptation and evil means to change our character, to change who we are. Because I don't know that all of us necessarily would want to be delivered from all evil and temptation if we're really honest in our heart of hearts. So to pray this prayer, again, like all of these phrases and clauses, it means so much more good than we could ever imagine. But there also places this new priority and expectation on our lives because we're asking God to change us. We're asking God to make us like Jesus. We're asking him to change our priorities, give us kingdom mindset, to, to help us to pray for different things on a day-to-day -day basis, to really deliver us from temptations and evil that for many of us, still seem pretty appealing if we're really honest with ourselves. So how are we really delivered in these ways? First of all, not by pretending that evil is not real or that temptation doesn't exist. That's like being in a burning house and saying like, well, man, if I take my coat off, I won't be quite so warm. 
You know, that's not what we're saying. We have to recognize the evil for what it really is and run from it like we're fleeing a burning house. The other thing, we, we can't just wallow in and embrace evil. For, for many of us, we're like, well, I'm just going to be in this, stuck in this cycle of just embracing and wallowing in sin and temptation and evil. And then while well, I come to church and, you know, he's my father, forgive me. If we're honestly praying this prayer, we're asking that he changes those priorities. He's saying, well, as a kingdom people, that's not the people we are anymore. Not because we're trying so hard, but because God's given us his spirit to change us and make us like Jesus. And finally, um, not thanks for letting me be a little less evil than other people. I'm sure you're really happy with me. I think that's how we are a lot of times as well. Like, you know, we're, we're the person in the, the story who's like, oh, God, thanks for me not letting me be like those tax collectors and sinners, you know, over there. Those people who really are bad. Uh, it's easy for us to sort of compare around and be like, man, I go to church every Sunday, dress kind of nice, got a family, like things are going pretty good, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm better than a lot of other people. So it's like a lot of times we think that that means, man, I'm part of God's kingdom. I, I'm good. He's not saying don't look around us and compare to that. We, and really, we can kind of see in these three different responses to evil, like Sadducees who are, you know, kind of pretending like evil is not actually real. The Essenes who are just like, man, I'm just going to be a part of evil all the time. Or Pharisees who are like, we're just going to be better than other people. Um, but Jesus' response is none of these. His response is to recognize and confront evil. And we see on Calvary, man, this is what evil really is, that the Son of God would have to die on the cross to atone for our evil. This is how much it costs God. And yet he's going to conquer and defeat it to liberate us and give us freedom, to be that father who says, let go of my firstborn son. He's not going to be a slave to this sin and temptation and evil anymore, but he's truly going to be liberated through Jesus. And our response then is to recognize the reality of evil and rest in Jesus' ultimate victory. So there are people who believe in God, but not the God that's revealed in Scripture, and not the God that's revealed to us in this prayer. There's, there's surely a God up there somewhere, but we don't embrace fully the God of Scripture. There's other people who, they want heaven after death, but they don't really want His kingdom to be a reality in our lives right now. I don't want to be that kingdom citizen now. The thing that I want to tell you is, is if you don't like that now, you're not going to like it in heaven either. Okay, it's not, we're not thinking about this as just an escape from a fiery hell. We're thinking about this as, this is the, this is the kingdom that we're called to be a part of. There's other people who got plenty of desires, but not necessarily desires that are in line with the kingdom of God. Uh, and some people who, who want for forgiveness, but they don't necessarily want to forgive other people or see what that costs. And there's there's other people who, who want just a little temptation and evil in their life. You know, I don't want to be delivered from all of that just yet, you know. Uh, maybe one day. Maybe one day when I'm old, but not now. Practical, a couple practical applications, and we'll, we'll be done for today. A couple practical applications for us, and, you know, I'm going to have to try to stretch this out as long as I possibly can, because they sent me, the, the truth is they sent me down from McDonough uh, to kind of filibuster so that they could get down here and get in the food line before y'all. That's the real, that's the real reason I'm here today. But um, no, I'm going to, we'll, we'll wrap it up right here. So a couple, a couple of quick practical applications from this. First of all, we got to recognize both the, the, the grace and the mercy from this prayer, the, the privilege of being able to, to pray this prayer with confidence, but also the demands and the risks of this prayer. 
the demands and the risks that come along with it because we're asking God to make us a new kind of person to change our priorities. And a lot of times, that might not necessarily be what we want right now. The second thing, to, to embrace Jesus in this prayer because the point of it is not to, to feel this overwhelming burden of what I'm trying to do and become. The point of, a, the point of it is that I'm, I'm going to pray this prayer with boldness and confidence, uh, and then I'm going to trust the Spirit of God to make that a reality in my heart and in my life because I can't do it on my own any more than if I put on as a seven or eight-year-old my dad's suit, I can't make myself fit into it. Uh, but spiritually, God's Spirit can raise us up into this kind of person, and this becomes a reality for us. Maybe not perfection, maybe not perfectly on this side of heaven, but it can constantly call us back to, to his priorities and what he's calling us to be. And just very practically, I would encourage you, uh, you there's a couple of ways you can, you can do this. You can make this just a framework for daily prayer to, to seek out uh, God's character and his kingdom priorities and, and to, to pray for, for what our true needs on a daily basis really are, to, to allow it to teach us how to pray, not just as a rote kind of memorized thing we're saying back and forth, but as a pattern to lay over our own prayer life that he can grow us up into. Uh, maybe we can, can memorize it and internalize it. Uh, maybe we can pray this um, as a template daily, or maybe we just take one phrase and say, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pray to God to reveal to me what it would be like for his name to be holy in my life. And tomorrow, what is it like for his kingdom to become a reality in my heart and life and allow the Spirit of God to work in us to reveal that very clearly to us?